This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Well, no mai toti mai to Mahika Kai Narratives, a program that brings researchers, policymakers, and those elbow deep in their practice together to discuss all areas related to, impacting on, and providing services to Mahikakai. Welcome to Mahikakai Narratives with Dion Payne. Oh, kia ora koutou katoa, this is um, Dion Payne with Mahikakai Narratives and our guest today um, is Dr Machu Payne. He was our first guest on this radio show and um, I'm really pleased to have him back. It's quite opportune um, that we're, that our topic today is around um, kaitiaki as it pertains to mahikakai. Um, and so um, there's been some recent news on the on the TV and the radio that might actually be able to help become a part of this discussion as well. So, machu. No mai hoki mai. <laughs> Thank you for having me back. Seems like I haven't gone anywhere. Um, I'm quite interested to have a discussion about um, how kaitiaki uh, support and enhance our um, mahikakai practices and um, maybe a little bit later talk about the difference between kaitiaki and tanifa. But can you talk to us or tell us about um, the role of kaitiaki tanga and kaitiaki um, in this particular area as it pertains to mahikakai? Yeah, um it's kind of unfair to try and unpack it all within a, <laughs> a short radio um, program, but it's it's something that's always been part and parcel of the fabric of mahikakai, um, is the central concept of tiaki. Um, tiaki for us, and you can find it in most online Māori dictionaries today, is about um, the ethic of caring or tending or using things in a sensible manner. Um, that was about ensuring sustainability, uh, making sure you didn't take too much, and making sure that we as humans, as part of the taiao, the environment, and the circles of life, if you like, um, stayed in balance. And so to tiaki, uh, to look after that resource was absolutely central um, to our participation in mahikakai. And, um, when we go out and we, we harvest things today or we cultivate things today, we do so in accordance with this idea of tiaki. If we're growing kumaro in the ground, how do we tiaki the whenua? Before we then tiaki the kumara to grow the tupu, to put them in the ground to make them grow, all through the process of growing is about tiaki. Um, similarly, when we go into the realm of takaroa, into the ocean, um, how do we tiaki each other? How do we tiaki um, Takaroa's realm that we go into as children of Tani? And how do we essentially ensure our health and safety while we're in the realm of Takaroa? Um, all of that comes back to this idea of tiaki. Um, so to tiaki um, in an appropriate manner is to ensure you know that you are operating in a pono way in a way that is tika and that you're doing things um, knowing full well that there is a whakapapa 
a genealogy that connects you as a child of Tani into the realm of wherever you're going to harvest and that when you do harvest you are taking from the natural world essentially those of your relations, your cousins, your brothers, your sisters that you are then going to consume. So it's quite a special relationship you have with Mahika Kai and the responsibility to Tiaki is um, fundamental to ongoing practice and the perpetuation of our Tikaka Mahika Kai. So understanding then that Tiaki is the central part, um, our people were very observant in the natural world and at times we became aware of certain beings whether they were creatures of the deep um, birds in the sky eels in the river um, spiritual entities um, they would be called upon or they would exist naturally in the environment and they were then termed kaitiaki uh, when you put kai in front of tiaki it personifies almost um, the responsibility of uh, tiaki so a being or an entity or even a person um, can be anointed, chosen um, or reinforced as a kaitiaki of an environment or a resource and for Mahika Kai um, it's well known well there are some very well known um, kaitiaki that we have and probably the most um, well known one I can refer to is the Pautuna which was the, the huge tuna that showed itself during the Tautuna Heke um, that signalled the end of the harvest. So when all the eels would run out to sea, when the Pautuna decided to show itself is when um, all harvesting would cease and the rest of the eels would be allowed to uh, then swim out to sea without any interference from the people. And so, yeah, depending on where they were in the season, the Pautuna might arrive early or might arrive later. But some of the families would acknowledge that the the seeing of this particular kaitiaki would regulate um, their behaviours, even if that Pautuna came earlier in a customary sense, um, you would never cross the, the kaitiaki that was put in place. And so we have other kaitiaki that are birds. Um, they could be fish. Could be a seal, could be a whale, could be a ruru. Um, in our par and kokorata, we have kaitiaki that are ruru. One of our families here observe um, a ruru ma, so the white mopok. And um, not only within a mahika kai context, but also as the the messenger of when somebody is to pass away, the ruru ma will show itself. And so we look to the environment for those kaitiaki. And um, they're very important in the fabric of Mahika Kai. Fantastic. So, because um, quite often today when people talk about kaitiakitanga, it's very much, it would seem, um, a human response to our environment. So um, humans looking after the environment. So it is really interesting that actually within the Mataraka space that it can be human, but can, but it can also be other living beings which is which is really good so what is the difference say between um, a kaitaki and um, a tanifa well if, if I can just take a step back for a second sure. I've just remembered a, 
really important interaction I had with one of our kaumatua in the mid to late 1990s uh, was Uncle Rick Toe, Rakihia Toe Senior. And he was um, integral in the, the promulgation of our South Island customary fishing regulations, which fell out of the Sea Lord settlement of the um, the government settlement to do with customary fishing rights in the Fishing Act. And there was a wording and the ability within these regulations to appoint local customary fishing managers. And the term that was utilised in the draft form of the regulations was uh, tangata kaitiaki or kaitiaki. And this um, uncle of ours contested the use of that terminology because of the strong grounding he had in mahikakai practice his whole life and his appreciation of the real meaning of the word kaitiaki, um, but more particularly the supernatural connotations that it has. And he felt it was more appropriate within the wording of the regulations to uh, rephrase the term for way from tangata kaitiaki to tangata tiaki because the word tangata is referring to human and tiaki is that central ethic of looking afterwards. Uh, for him, tangata kaitiaki was too close to a supernatural observance and inconsistent with our tikaka for what was being talked about. Um, so that was actually a fundamental change um, to the draft, which is still in law today. So even as a takata tiaki that I am here for our harbour, um, yeah, it's fulfilling a kaitiaki role, but it's acknowledging that as a human I have a different space. Um, That's really interesting, and I like that distinction. It's a very important distinction for us here in Te Waipaunamu. Um, the same wording didn't get uh, transferred into the North Island version of the regulations, okay. so up there it's still called uh, tangata kaitiaki or kaitiaki. Um, but kaiarato tēra. Mm-hmm. Um, we can only talk for our place and space. But that was one thing I remembered from that time, because at the time I was working with um, uh, the Ministry of Fisheries, as it was then, down in Dunedin, and my job was to um, assist putting them in place around Te Waipaunamu. So, yeah, it was really interesting conversations, and it helped to really fill out, I guess, what I had learned to that point in my life around kaitiaki and the importance, but also the differentiation of people's roles with the roles of those that were in the spirit world or those that were in the the realm of the other children of Tani or Takaroa or whoever. That, what I find really interesting about that is quite often, um, even as I was growing up, when we would use the term kaitiaki, it, it did not necessarily go straight to the human form. You know, as you were saying, that different whanau can have a particular kaitiaki. So that that's a really interesting um, differentiation between tangata tiaki and kaitiaki. Um, I'm also really interested in, for example, within mahikakai, that when the environment is not at its optimum, um, that we also see then that not only can the environment suffer, the mahikakai suffer, what is the flow-on effect then to, say, the kaitiaki, whether that's in human or supernatural form? Do we start to see that impact flow into the kaitiaki as well? That's been our recent experience. Um, you know, when we don't listen to our kaitiaki, we almost render them um, not useless, but we render them 
um, impotent because when they fulfill their role and they commit to their roles and they do all the things to look after the resource and advise us as humans through their own languages um, why uh, we should desist or increase some other kind of assistance to the net part of the tayal. If we don't listen to their or heed their warnings or heed their advice, then we do render them impotent and it's, um, it's quite sad. Uh, we might see as a practical example when there's too much plastic in an environment and birds start washing up dead because they've swallowed it or seals might wash up dead or different kinds of fish when you cut them you can see the, uh, the ingestation of those types of um, pollutants in the water. Um, but more recently for us in our, our immediate environment of Kokodarata we've had um, two marine kaitiaki die. Um, in fact there were two marine tanifara in our, our ancient Pudako. Uh, one was a tohorama, a white whale. Um, and when this one washed up um, he was 20 metres long. Um, the scientists referred to him as a fin whale. And um, at 20 metres long he was about 20 tonnes heavy and the place where he washed up was so remote there was no road access and boat access was problematic because when the wind blew, um, as we discovered the day we went to do karakia, um, we couldn't get to shore. And so um, yeah, it was it was quite a sad occasion to, to see that, um, not only for the absolute majesty of this particular tohora, but knowing that this tohora, when we identified him, um, was the one from our stories called Koroko. And Koroko was the uh, the name of this whale, and where he washed up, we've given the name O Koroko, or the place of Koroko. And um, he was one of the kaitiaki, one of the tanifa, that looked after the environment around that part of the coast. But he also played a special role um, in some of our pūrāko concerning a place called Otohukaura Oteao. Um, and that's a place where our um, ancient schools of learning um, were undertaken right up until we estimate about the 1860s, 1870s. Um, but land that was taken away from us through the ill-fated purchase of 1849, the Port Levy purchase, um, but for which we still hold very strongly to the Pudako. Um, so one of his, his duties was to, um, to blow water uh, from his spout at the conclusion of karakia or of tohi ceremonies that might be held in that particular location. And so the, the tohuka, it was said, would look out for him. Um, and if the karakia or the ceremony was done correctly, the confirmation would be received through this whale servicing and then blowing water into the sky, which would create an uenuku, a kahukura. Um, so yeah, that was a pretty important role that he played. So of course when he passed away, um, our Pūrāko's reliance upon his presence, the very practice of our tohi ceremonies and our karakia and ceremonies at that place, and also in our harbour of Kokodarata, um, we found we could no longer rely upon that. So our whole system of knowledge transfer, and part of it was around Mahikakai, um, it's interrupted because we no longer have that tanifa around that kaitiaki to guide us um, in respect of confirming whether the karakia was correct.
and for us that's left us wondering, you know, what caused that? Um, because of the remoteness and the weight of this um, tōra, no scientific study could be undertaken to determine what actually killed him physically. Uh, but yeah, it's um, it's something we're still um, saying karakia for today. The wairua, the spirit of our, one of our ancestors who was called Koroko, was imbued to this particular um, whale to ensure that the works of those ancient schools of learning would continue because he was one of the original teachers of that place, the stories tell us. Yeah, so what happens when they're not there? We're still learning. Um, the impact on the environment is significant, not only for the immediate death and the, um, the hoka, the stench that comes from the death, the feeding frenzy that happens on the two papaku, uh, the repatriation of the koiwi to our people, which our people gathered to do. Um... But yeah, the, in terms of the role that he's played um, for well over, oh, I don't know, must be getting on to 200 years now, um, we now have to look to the environment for the tohu, the signs of who's next in terms of the role this particular tanifa played. Um, the other tanifa who passed before, um, hon, uh, before the tohora, before koroko, uh, was a great big honu um, and she was again an important player and an important um, kaitiaki but also a tanifa who was responsible again along with koroko uh, for assisting in the karakia associated with the tohi ceremonies of Otohukooro Te Ao and a place called Kirikiriwairia which is Menzies Bay and um, the stories would say that she would surface from a, a lair that she had underneath a reef in the locality. And if the karakia was done correctly as she surfaced, she would uh, roll on her back and then she would roll over again before descending back into the water. And when you see videos of Honu moving today all over the world, they do replicate that kind of behaviour. So it's kind of um, easy to see how that might be. Um, replicated in a place like um, Kirikiriwaire uh, but of course when you're a child growing up and you're being taught these stories and even for a long time for me as an adult because I personally had never viewed um, this particular honu um, you have to act on faith that these pūrāko are, are true and that within the fabric of Mātauraka Māori um, what you're being taught um, is the stories that have been passed down from generation to generation. Um, so yeah, the um, the last group of Komatua to see these this particular honu uh, was associated with a, a Komatua who came down from uh, the north. Uh, Joe Northover was his name and came from up in uh, Kahungunu, Tamanuhiri. And when he came down, he came down to ask uh, for te mauri or te tiriti or waitaki, is the way the story is told. And so some of the komatuas, Uncle Ricky Ellison, uh, Auntie Ruku, trying to think who else was told to me, uh, were driven over there by Uncle Charlie Sabritsky. Um, all of these komatuas, of course, have passed on now. 
and when they got to Ornuku there they found one of our Robinson uncles on the beach and this old Komatua from the north asked him about um, because Ornuku of course is associated with where the treaty was signed here in Te Waipaunamu and so this uncle um, pointed out uh, a kohatu, a rock in the shape of a white whale and this white whale of course was the the tanifa but was represented in this particular rock and the Pūrāko says that this um, kōhatu was te mauri o te tiriti. so they had karakia there um, it was agreed that this kōhatu would be taken back to the north to be gathered with the other mauri of te tiriti that were around the country and would assist in the culmination of the settlement of all the different Waitangi claims that were um, at that stage still fledgling and it was taken away on the premise that one day it would be returned and so when they uplifted the rock after the karakia the Komatuas saw the honu come up from beneath the sea it showed itself, it did the same thing, it rolled on its back and then it submerged back into the water and it said from their mouths that it then returned to Kirikiriwairia um, to its lair there because that's where um, she would lay um, when she was in this part of the world so for us the Honu um, held those very important roles and the 1980s was the last time it was seen so I was just a well, not a little boy but not old enough to know much at that stage and I wasn't there to see it myself so I acted on faith and understanding that the Pūrāko we have many of them are hundreds of years old and many of the things we have not witnessed in this lifetime but the beautiful thing of Mātauraka Māori is that we're given a glimpse into the stories and the realities of our tipuna and the, um, the honu in particular um, was important to us because it was not only the kaitiaki but also a tanifa because it was so um, relatively unknown in our New Zealand waters that we had honu and um, yeah, as kids and even as adults we used to think do we really have honu in our mm. country mm. Um, but of course when honu surfaced in 2019 washed up dead um I asked one of our uncles and then later more of our kaumātua um, is this the honu that we've been taught about and the answer was yes and so iohorere katoa we were got very very surprised because obviously this knowledge wasn't really well known mm. um, it was kept in what we called the muna mātauraka um, or our our confidential knowledge systems where not everybody was aware mm. of uh, one that the honu existed and two what the honu's role um, was um, amongst our people so when the um, the first we found out about it actually was seeing a picture of honu on the back of a truck being presented to some school children mm. and a newspaper article on the stuff website saying that Honu is being transferred to Te Papa in Wellington. And then maybe a day later or something, another article saying um, for scientific testing, skeletonization, and then mounting for display in Te Papa. At which stage, um, after discussing with our Komatua, there was a, um, 
a communication initiated by me through the media and through our hapu and our iwi networks to seek repatriation of our honu. Do you mind if I ask, I mean, obviously we've seen uh, recently a meme around, um, you know, that this whole science, scientific type of knowledge they wanted to extract from honu yeah. versus mātauranga Māori. And, and, and it really did not seem that people understood why the skeletonization and display of a tanifa such as this it was appropriate within a mātauranga perspective. Could you just share, I mean, just could you tell us why it's important that honu come back whole um, back to the people? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to acknowledge, I guess, that there's a, there is a dichotomy between worldviews when it comes to scientific research and mātauraka Māori and rakahau and tikaka and riteka, all of those kinds of considerations that we have. Um, for us, it was important that honu came home whole because we likened um, honu, but also koroko, uh, the Tohorama who passed, they were akin to a close relative who'd passed away. Uh, more especially because we regarded them as tanifa. And the key difference between tanifa and kaitiaki is the association of ancestral wairua um, that have been dedicated towards those particular kaitiaki. So a kaitiaki can fulfil the role within the taiao and go about their work, um, but if there are ancestral um, or atua wairua um, that are called upon or have work to do in spiritual form, then the tohuka of old would then dedicate the wairua of that person to a kaitiaki, and for us that's when they would be deputised, if you'd like to call it like that, as tanifa. Um, that's just one way of looking at it for us. So when the physical forms of these tanifa then passed away. Um, the wairua, as we know, um, will separate from the tinana, but they're still associated and the reverence we paid and the respect we paid to the physical form um, is such that we don't want to see it desecrated um, any more than it should be or could be. Um, and for Hunu, um, she was such an important part of the fabric of not only the moana, but of the land um, for our hapu here in Horomaka, um, that it seemed inconceivable that she would be then dissected, um, past the majority of her would be essentially boiled away and disposed of to leave the skeleton behind to be put on display. And because we have lost a lot of our komatua recently as well, um, we couldn't imagine that happening to one of our our human relations, let alone one of our uh, marine relations as well. And, you know, we received some ridicule of late around our perceptions of the relationships we have between marine creatures and humans. Um, but it makes perfect sense in a Matauraka Māori mm. framework where the whakapapa of the Aotūrua and the whakapapa takata are connected. So it makes perfect sense why we would regard honu and koroko as our relatives um, from a mātauraka Māori perspective, but when the worldview changes to something that's purely Western and scientific, of course that doesn't always fit and that mm. can cause conflict and tension. So we were really fortunate that um, due to great collaborations and partnerships, 
um, both Department of Conservation and Te Papa were very open to um, Hono being repatriated and it was a very special occasion to be able to go up there, um, see Hono, have karakia and go through that whole process with all of the staff at DOC and Te Papa. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well look, can I firstly acknowledge Te Papa and Te Papa Atawhai. Mm. Uh, without their um, strength and assistance, um, Honu would not be back home here in Hutakiwa. So I, I, I can never thank those two departments enough for the um, the support they gave, if moral support mainly for the return in an appropriately um, tika way mm. of our Honu and her two papaku back home here. Um, and it's no secret, I guess there's been a bit of negative media attention around that whole situation um, of late. Um, but it needs to be, I guess, balanced by the fact that there was a much greater input from our people in terms of how that particular event came to be. So, you know, we, we you and I knew of families who paid out of their own pockets mm. to assist the process. You and I mobilised different parts of our families to be there and to do different jobs. So Others, I know from here. Yeah, yeah. There were hundreds of voluntary hours that went through and it was all complicated by the fact that we had the COVID lockdown, mm. which extended everything again. So, yeah, we're just bringing balance, I guess, to the um, one-sided argument that's come out in the past <laughs> few days, I guess. But I think that's also, <clears throat> again, when you look at two very different... Um, knowledge systems that when you look at an occasion such as the repatriation of something like Honu or you know when Honu came home um, from a very Māori perspective very normal Mm. nothing was amiss Um, from a western perspective no idea no understanding and yet we had members of the community stop and come and join us when we held that um, that time here with with Honu before she was buried, we literally had people work, walking off the street. They were non Maori that just wanted to be a part of it, and they understood immediately the 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 solemnness of the occasion, the celebration of the occasion. So sometimes it's not necessarily we're not so far apart. It's just when another part decides to polarize themselves and go. That makes no sense. That doesn't. That why don't we just let it be displayed? But from a Maori perspective, it was it was just normal. Yeah, I mean the the key thing was that we never made a secret mm. um, from our hapu's perspective of our desire to see Honu return home. Um, we also never wanted it to be an exclusive um, situation either. So right from the beginning, um, we invited members of our community. Um, landowners here in Kokorarata and from people from all around our Horomaka communities that if they wanted to come and be a part of this the doors were open and that was our our manaki um, in acknowledgement of the importance of this particular tanifa but that you know that aside I think it was really pleasing to see on the day we had yeah, our neighbours from Kokorarata coming in um, our, our non-Maori neighbours coming in to, to support as well and you could see them all smiling on the videos of the day. Um, but I think the most important part for me was seeing our young tamariki. Mm. Um, being able to see, feel, smell 
and experience being close to something so important in our pūrāko. And, you know, it was reported back to me by the parents of many that it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and certainly was for me, and I'd learned those stories well over 30 years ago now. To see her wash up dead must have been a real shock in a sense of, A, um, this is real, but B, that, oh my goodness, it's died, so what does that mean? Yeah. It, it's a staged kind of um, realisation and grief. Um, I remember saying to you when we went up to Te Papa before she was loaded into the truck to come home, um, the impact of seeing her in real life, because that's the first time I had seen her since um, the whole scenario had began, I was hit with an incredible grief. And my role that day was to carry karakia and to carry fai kōrero, um, in the ceremony that was there and I had to actually just let the grief happen first and it was a very strong grief um, perhaps because my mum had died you know mm. the year before um, not long after eh? not mm. long after Honu had washed up and so maybe it was a culmination of all of those grief factors coming together but nothing could prepare me for the realisation that the stories absolutely were real I never had reason to doubt them, um, but I think there's a common um, encroaching upon Mātauraka Māori where if something isn't recorded in a manuscript or if something isn't written down somewhere, then it can't be true. But that's not how Mātauraka Māori works. Mm. Mātauraka Māori um, is a living, breathing knowledge system that does rely upon oral transmission of knowledge at times, actually most of the time. And so... The realm of Pūrāko, the realm of Whakapapa, still today remains um, active and vibrant, particularly when it comes to te taio. And so one of the, the key kaumātua who taught me, um, Uncle Morris Gray, who, who's now no longer with us, um, was resolute that the stories that he was passing were the same stories he was taught um, by his tawa, um, tawa fan, tawa hine, and others of the Komatuas who were around him um, during his youth, from his grandfather to Poa Ricky to Uncle Joe, um, you know, too many to to really name and give um, homage to. But that was their their normal understanding and acknowledging these Tanifa and Kaitiaki existed, their importance in the realm of Mahikakai, but also understanding that the stories didn't fit always with what we know in a scientific knowledge system. Mm. And I know that from having completed my science degree as a young student. Um, but that created great conversation pieces when then going back to my komatua to say, but this is different to that. How do I rationalise that? And it was really easy for them to rationalise because in a whakapapa sense, there was a space for everything. Mm. But it takes time to understand the frameworks. And when you don't have that time, um, such as sensationalist media reporting, <laughs> um, it can create misunderstandings, um, you know, denigrations of knowledge systems as well. I think that's probably the thing that's most surprising um, is that some of the, the, the criticism, as we've seen over the last couple of days, are really from people who did not turn up, who, did, who, who were not there. But I remember having a really beautiful moment watching um, when she was on her stand before she was taken over to Horomaka 
but watching little kids, little, little kids come up to Honu and hongi her mm. and having that connection with with this very large turtle, you sat there and just knew, I don't care what anybody else thinks, that is something we will never see again. And I think that's I think that's really what a lot of people missed. And I think you had to be there to truly understand what all of that means from a Mataranga yeah. perspective. Um, and how deep that knowledge really sits. Well, I'm glad you use that word deep because that's where we get the name honu. Mm. Hohonu. Hohonu is the depths. So we know that many honu dive to very great depths, and this particular species of honu um, travels worldwide. Um, they go down kilometres deep before they then surface again. Um, to catch a breath and and follow on their journey. So our understanding of the word honu is it comes from hohonu, hohonu meaning deep, or the depths. Not only of the ocean, but the depths of Fakaro, the depths of Matauraka. So their association with Matauraka Māori and Mahikakai was all about pursuing the depths of the knowledge, the breadth of the knowledge. And when honu, through her journeys around the world, would come back to this part of the world to her lair, then she also brought those connections from other parts. And we know that there are strong associations with honu across not only Polynesia, but other indigenous cultures. Um, the Great Turtle Island mm. Um, mm. of the North Americas um, you know, is testament. And it was part of the pathways of this particular honu as well. So we don't think for a second she was only ours. Mm. Her journey and those of her whānau, uh, honu, uh, continue to traverse the earth. And we here in Te Waipaunamu, as part of Aotearoa, and long before we stopped crossing Te Moana Nui Akiwa, we observed these kinds of um, interactions. Um, that waka that was found at Anawika, up in the top of the South Island, where everyone was... You know, so surprised and clambering over the fact that there was a honu carved on this particular waka yes. from hundreds of years ago. And I was just like, but there's no honu in our waters. Yet we're sitting here in Kokodata going, we know where there's one. Yes. And it wasn't till many years later, obviously, when our honu decided to give up this body, um, that it was confirmed. But up until that point, it was Matauraka Māori that had been passed down and couldn't be backed up by something someone had physically seen. Uh, but in the digital age, of course, there's hundreds of pictures now up online. So, yeah, very important to have faith mm. in the mātauraka of our people and also have faith when it's challenged and have faith particularly when um, the mātauraka isn't supported by something written on paper mm. because that's not the natural aspect of Mātauraka Māori. It exists in the natural world. It either is or it isn't, or it could be. Uh, but there are frameworks around how we make that um, happen for our people. I think it's an interesting um, state we find ourselves in when the words kaitiaki or kaitiakitanga or kaitiakitaka are utilised across all manner of platforms adopted by government um, departments, uh, throughout universities and schools 
and yet when we come to this space where we actually where the articulation and practice of it is very deep is is right there that all of a sudden there's this questioning as to whether it is or it isn't oh. i think it's um it's one of these things where when we adopt language that there's a practice that sits behind that language and it's one thing to take parts of that and go we'll believe in that but not that that's where we not necessarily I'm not saying be challenging but rather for us to be able to turn around and go there's always practice with kupu so at the end of the day the language is not a language in and of itself that it has meaning in spaces particularly our cultural spaces and I think the honu and the Torah are phenomenal examples of where we heard about them <laughs> we never saw them and then all of a sudden they're right here in front of us within months of each other that mm. was the scary part but you know can i acknowledge also what you said in terms of the taking of these customary terms and applying them in things like legislation yes and then they meet the the world of bureaucracy and policy and implementation and case law and politics and all that sort of thing and if you don't have the opportunity to understand what the customary terms mean without those impediments um, those words then get captured, mm. redefined, reapplied, and at times they become very distanced from what they actually meant to begin with. And we need to be really careful around that. I think what you're saying is really important because I think when we look at it in its current articulation, it's humans having kaitiaki of the environment. Whereas if we come back to the honu and the tohora, it was the environment that was the tiaki of humans in our practice from the stories you were talking about, Karaki and Tohi, is that we were not the controllers and at the apex of that food chain, but rather that there was this very balance between the environment telling us the signs. Yeah. Whereas Kaitiakitanga, as we know it, is us doing something to the landscape. It's interesting how it's been flipped. Well, as humans, we have a love affair, particularly here in Aotearoa, with this <laughs> idea of um, productivity, mm. you know, intensification, make, getting the most you can yes. <laughs> from the least amount of environment, you know, farming, yeah. horticulture, um, aquaculture to mm -hmm. a large extent as well. All of these things we're encouraged to get the most financial or economic productivity from. Um, and the danger in that, when we use that as our only measuring stick, is that we can become unbalanced ourselves as humans. We, we forget that we are actually part of the circle of life, if you like. And we do become arrogant and start to think that we control the environment. And if there's something that tsunami or earthquakes have taught us um, worldwide, is that we don't control papatuanuku, rakinui, or takaroa, or tawhirimātea, or any of those domains um, that we participate and move within. So we do have to be extremely mindful and recalibrate our own thinking that we are part of the environment. And I think a lot of the worldwide youth we're seeing today are actually saying, you know, with words like climate crisis, with words like, um, you know, we're the ones that are going to suffer from what's happening right now and what's happened before us. Um, it's forcing us to do that thinking because we're seeing signs of um, sea level rise, we're seeing signs of pollution in all sorts of areas. And that equilibrium 
um, needs a bit of assistance from us as humans, or we like to think it does. Hmm. But if we cannot achieve that, then I guess there's another way that um, the tail can recalibrate as well. So yeah, um, we have to acknowledge we are just a small part of a wider of a wider whakapapa, mm. which is te taiao. And I think if there's one thing I really wanted to show as part of these series of kōrero was around mahikakai is traditional, contemporary and future. Mataranga is traditional, <laughs> contemporary and future, is that we have to throw off these shackles of interpretation that we have not given them ourselves that we have to go back to our, our old ways of thinking that everything is interconnected and has whakapapa. Well, we need to teach ourselves again too. Yes. Um, our education system in this country does not lend itself to um, customary learning methods nor knowledge. Um, that's something that our, our education um, proactivists, I call them, um, are doing a great job in trying to amend particularly our history in the country as a starting point. Um, but when it comes to uh, Mātauraka Māori, there needs to be a deliberate effort on our own behalf to reclaim that which is integral to us and be okay with it, to mm. try and almost decolonize our educational experience and reclaim what it is to be Indigenous in our own whenua, in our own moana. Um, too often we buy into these ideas, like even kaitiaki taka as, a, as an example, if Tiaki is the centre of the kaupapa, and then we know that the kaitiaki is those supernatural extensions of the, the Tiaki experience, we as humans have then said kaitiaki tanga, the beingness of a kaitiaki. So, okay. <laughs> the beingness of a kaitiaki. So it almost further separates us from the yes. central Tiaki ethic which was to remain in balance, to be a part of, and to contribute also to the maintenance of balance around tiaki, to support the kaitiaki and listen to them. And then we've created kaitiaki tanga for legislative purposes, mm. um, which has got a whole, you know, kaupapa on its own, yep. so I'm not going to open that can of worms today. But if we're going to keep making these new terms to distance ourselves from the central ethic like tiaki, then we've got to know the whakapapa of how we got there, not just accept that kaitiakitanga was always the way it was. Maybe it was in some parts of the world, um, but for us in our hapu, um, tiaki was central to the thinking. Kaitiaki is very well known. We still mm. acknowledge our kaitiaki that fly, that swim, that walk, that appear and disappear. Um, we know who they are, where they're situated, and we don't often share that information with non whānau. Um, even in our own iwi, if mm. you're not of that whakapapa and you don't need to know, you won't know. <laughs> and it's the same when we go to somebody else's takiwa. If it's not our business, it's none of my business. And I think that's what's really important between the difference of, um, as you're saying, whether that's Munamataranga or Mataranga or um, academia, Western science, is that there is this assumption that people should just tell. Yeah. Just just tell yeah. me because I want to know and I won't believe it until I hear it or see it. Prove to me that your knowledge yeah. is real. Yeah. And I think that in and of itself is is a real difficulty that many Māori have to deal with because we sit there and go, why would we or why should we? 
it's, it's a little bit like you owe me that information as opposed to we are protecting this information from that extractification own uh, the ownership and loss of if if we put it in today's term loss of IP and then commercialization of our knowledge systems when actually a lot of those Puraka and stories are very I mean are very important. Let's take a look at the last three days. There was a very there was a very deep personal uh, you know matauranga around Honu that was cheapened. And, and made salacious by media for a story. When really, it and none of that mātauranga that was shared over the last couple of days was ever put into any of those clips. And I think Māori are very suspicious and fearful of that um, ridicule of things that are very important to us. And, 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 and I think that's why we don't tell those stories. Well, it's part of it. The other part is it's not anyone else's business. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, the, the analogy I often use is, would you expect to rock up into, what's one of the famous pharmaceutical companies? I can't remember. Pfizer, for example, with COVID <laughs> yeah. and, um vaccines. Yes. Would you expect to rock up into Pfizer head office and say, um, can I talk to your recipe maker for the Pfizer <laughs> um, vaccine, please? Mm. And they'll be just looking at you going, are you crazy? And if I say to them, well, I think you'll have a better relationship with me if if you share that, and then I can share what I know, and then sure. we can make money together. And Pfizer's like, well, we're already making money and we're saving <laughs> lives. Why do I need you? So, you know, we wouldn't do that no. because we have a respect and an understanding of the framework where that um, patent probably for that kind of science and the respect for science that we have wouldn't enable us to do that or mm. motivate us to try and do that. Um, same with McDonald's. We wouldn't rock up into a secret McDonald's sauce. and say, hey, <laughs> give me the recipe for your secret sauce. Um, because that's part of the magic that makes that business successful. And people are still trying to figure out the um, ingredients for KFC chicken. So. Yeah, I mean, all really bad <laughs> mahikakai examples, obviously. Clearly. But, you know, the, the analogy I draw is... If we have that respect and understanding for commercial entities and for scientific entities, then surely the same respect needs to be applied for Matauraka Māori and Mahika Kai mm. frameworks of knowledge that it is not an automatic right for people to access, um, to commercialise and to commodify. Mm-hmm. Um, when it's been held and passed down through the families, literally, for hundreds and hundreds yeah. of years. So, you know, we need to elevate our expectations and respect for the knowledge that's held and those who hold it. Um, and that's something we need to reteach ourselves as well, because we can be quite critical of those who hold knowledge within families. Right. I just wanted, um, we've, we've got a, f- a few minutes left now, and I just wanted to... Uh, maybe ask one question and that is we now have two tanifa that have passed in close proximity mm. um, what if anything do you think that is telling us about what's happening in our environment yeah well it's it's, it's something that we need to keep observing um, to inform us what is going on um, for the last three years we've been observing other um, bioindicators in our harbour in particular. Uh, we've seen the absence of our hooker, our mm. red cod. We've seen um, increased sedimentation that's mm-hmm. arisen from uh, the dredging activities occurring in our next door harbour. 
we've observed the earlier flowering of our corfi tree for the last th three seasons. So when we start to cultivate our soil, we use the saying i haukwe dao te kōwhai. Where were you when the kōwhai tree bloomed? Because that's when we started to dig the soil. But last year, it bloomed in June. Mm. So we dug the soil and prepared it and got it ready. And then we had to wait for a couple of months for it to warm up to start planting things. Mm. And it just, it's really strange for our, our regular kind of um, activities. So... I've also heard you recently saying that the ruru hasn't been heard here in Kaurau. Yeah, That's a three summers. One. Three yeah. summers we haven't heard our ruru, and we used to hear them at night for all summer. Um, so we've we've made observations in our local environment, and with the arrival now of these two um, tanifa coming ashore, you know we are concerned. We're concerned for our taiao. We're concerned for our moana, um, and we continue to karakia. We continue to try and find avenues where we can start to replant trees because our whole Horomaka region was totally deforested mm. in the 1850s. Um, so, you know, that in and of itself is a huge contributing factor to the health of the environment we have. Our water is disappearing from our rivers. Um, our Kokodarata River this year all but dried up for the lack of rain, um, for it being used for other things. So, you know, it, it comes back to the fundamentals of Modi, mm. you know, the life force of the river, the land, the sea, the animals, that if these things are starting to change and we're observing them, what are we doing to try and tiaki um, that space? Because if we don't tiaki and find the solutions, the environment will self-correct and we may not be able to do the sorts of things we've been taught to do. Um, and I think that has that real application when you consider that our mahikakai in all of its different forms and all of its different spaces are predicated on a healthy environment to be able to I then feed us um, and, and nourish us in the same way. So it's an interesting interconnected web we find ourselves in. The way I teach our kids um, when they want to listen <laughs> is that the moana is our supermarket. Mm. Kaka Nui in days gone by where all the kaka birds lived, that was our KFC. Uh, Manukuya, the mountain range where all of the other birds, including those yummy fat kereru that I hear are tasty, um, that was our KFC. Um, but as the environment has been adapted, changed and degraded, those kai are no longer available to us. So in my lifetime I've seen the absence of um, tuaki, our cockle beds mm. here, have not been able to replenish themselves for the um, dirt we have coming off the hills every season. We now see very few hooker. Uh, the cod um, mullet even is becoming scarce. So they're either finding somewhere better to live or something's going on in the moana itself. But the practices we have associated with that kai um, we don't practice as often because there's nothing to practice on and we don't want to take what little is left because mm. our job is to tiaki and try and replenish. Listen, thank you so much for um, having this interview with me today. Uh, very topical at the moment. Um, I 
really appreciate you actually sharing some of those stories that would ordinarily be in the Munumataraka space as a way to um, articulate what we're, what we're hearing elsewhere. Uh, so thank you so much and I appreciate your time. Kia ora, tēnā tātou.